and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, who are known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Andrea Cunliffe. And I'm Jacob Boston. <clears throat> we begin with Moses Nagel's report on the unionization efforts of quality, asso- of quality assurance workers at Blizzard. Then, Mark Dunley reports on the arrests made at Extinction, at Extinction Rebellion Occupation versus fossil fuel financing at a TD Bank rally. Later on, historian Heather Briegel talks about indigenous history and policy with land and its connection to murdered and missing indigenous women. After that, Marsha Lazarus talk about food with Jeremy Wright about his culinary journey. Finally, poet Hajar Husseini talks with Sina Bazila Hickey about her new book, Disbound. But first, here are the headlines. The Times Union reports that the property management company for Redburn Development Partners, the developer behind the downtown Albany and Schenectady's most high-profile residential development project, is being sued by several former construction workers for allegedly allowing a racially hostile work environment to fester on job sites where the plaintiffs say that they were subjected to racial slurs and constant toxic behavior. In front of a deeply divided courtroom, acting Supreme Court Justice Roger McDonough sentenced Alexander Alexander Contempassus to a to a 20-year sentence in state prison after the stabbing of two members of the far of the far right Proud Boys group during a Stop the Steal rally. Out, the rally was outside the state capitol on January 6, 2021. McDonald rejected Contempassus' Redon, rejected claims that he, that he had gone to the Capitol as an independent journalist to document the rally. The rally was held the same day as the assault on the federal Capitol. Quantum Passes and his attorney have said he was, in, he was the victim of a coordinated attack. The Times Union reports that adolescents held at the 24-bed Capitol District Juvenile Secure Detention Facility where a teen recently died, have allegedly been abused and negle- have been abused and neglected in more than two dozen incidents since 2016, including cases of physical and sexual ab- abuse. Several cases have been referred for prosecution. Ambulances in the Capitol District are often forced to wait hours before they are able to bring patients into the emergency rooms of area hospitals. The emergency medical services of local governments are complaining are complaining the overloaded hospitals are effectively using emergency crews to perform nurse duties at their expenses due to nurse short nurse staffing sh- shortages. The Gilderland Town Board recently directed their EMS services to begin billing hospitals when they experience long wait times. The number of private sector jobs in New York State increased slightly over the last month by 3,700, 
to 8,063,300 in October 2022. This was up 3.9% from October 2021. The official unemployment rate in the state is 4.4%, with 415,000 individuals unemployed. And that's it for the headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds communities in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you could contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org or email us at hmmmediasanctuary.org or call 518-272-2390. And first up, quality assurance workers in Albany for video game maker Activism Blizzard have filed for union recognition. They are the second group of workers from the prominent game developer to file for recognition with the CWA, that's the Communication Workers of America. Moses Nagel spoke to a couple of the organizers. Amanda Lavin and Matthew Devlin are quality assurance workers at the video game developer Blizzard Albany, formerly Vicarious Visions. Their company developed well-known games like Guitar Hero, Call of Duty, and Diablo. They are currently involved in an effort to organize their workplace. I started out by asking them to explain what they do. I am the audio subject matter expert for Diablo 4 which means I'm responsible for communicating with the audio team and understanding what their design is and what their intentions are so that um, I can create the test cases for it so that we can ensure that their designs are working as intended. We ad hoc test playing the game and trying to execute different actions that a player might do to see what happens and see if things break so that we can report that back to the designers and developers so that they can fix those. And I am part of the quest pod team. I specifically work with the quest structure, main campaign, and side quest content within the game. So you guys both play video games critically, right? Yes and no. <laughs> uh, a lot of my job actually isn't so much playing the game these days. Um, a lot of the, the requests that I'll get involve checking things out in the engine, writing documentation. There's a lot of technical writing as a quality assurance tester, like a lot. There's a whole massive workload involving spreadsheets and documentation that people just don't understand. They think that we just sit there and play games all day, whereas we're really like librarians when it comes to bugs. When and how did you start thinking that you wanted to organize your workplace? So the original union push uh, started over almost a year ago at this point. In July of 2021, there was a lawsuit filed by the Department of Fair Employment and Housing in California that alleged extensive sexual and racial harassment and discrimination perpetuated by Activision Blizzard and individuals at Activision Blizzard, which outraged pretty much everyone at the company. And the company's initial response to that lawsuit was abysmal. It was terrible, basically calling the accusers liars, saying that the lawsuit was politically motivated. And so essentially people realized that we weren't going to see the kinds of changes that we need to see to improve our industry because these issues are prevalent across the entire game industry and we want better so we realized it was really only going to happen if we took this into our own hands and another inciting incident was the layoff of a dozen quality assurance workers at raven software which is an activision studio out in wisconsin 
the remaining workers immediately went on strike. They were on strike for, I believe, six or seven weeks. And during that time, they organized their union. And so when they returned from striking, they immediately announced their intent to unionize. They went through their NLRB hearing, they got their decision, had their election and got certified, and they're currently in their bargaining process. So while they were doing all of that, we were also working on our campaign and uh, talking to people in our department and assessing support and talking about the benefits that we could gain from unionizing, getting support. And we're very happy that um, there are currently 18 testers in our department who are eligible for the union. And 17 of those 18 have been very publicly supportive, signing on to collective letters, taking collective actions, pledging to vote yes. We announced our intent to unionize uh, July of this year, and we had our NLRB hearing in August, and we got our decision uh, at the end of October, and we have our vote count scheduled for Friday. So if the NLRB rejects the company's appeal, then we'll, we'll go forward with that. And if the NLRB decides to hear their appeal, then we'll have to wait um, until they have the time to do that and make a decision on it. I've certainly heard stories about the misogyny in the world of video game culture, I guess maybe not as much in video game creating, but- Oh, it's I, there. Yeah. So we usually think of organizing as specifically about your hours, your your wages, your benefits. So how is it that successful organizing is going to help with, with that specific problem? A lot of union leaders and a lot of um, people who are organizing in other ways. We have various worker-led committees who are doing research and looking for solutions to issues like sexual harassment, and discrimination, compensation issues, the need for remote work, crunch culture. So a lot of these organizers, union and otherwise, are women, or they're non-binary, or they're members of other marginalized communities who are standing up and saying, we, we want to make this better. And the way that a union can help with that is that when, when you go to bargain, people think, okay, you're bargaining over your compensation and your benefits and things like that. But you can absolutely bargain over other aspects of your working conditions too, including things like what should the process be for reporting issues of harassment or discrimination or other workplace problems? What should discipline look like for that? And also having greater unity with your coworkers. One thing that I've definitely learned from this process is how much of a community you build when you get everyone pulling in the same direction. We protect each other. We stand up for each other. We talk to each other. Your employer didn't readily accept this move. Can you describe a little bit about the ways that they've resisted? We're so united that they keep trying to throw common union busting tactics at us as if our combined you know, voices will just be silenced by their massive wallets. We are so unified and publicly saying that this is what we want, that the, the company realizes they can't stop us from voting yes. So their tactic has largely been to try to otherize the union. They will not acknowledge our name, Game Workers Alliance Albany. They are constantly pointing at CWA, the Communication Workers of, of America, which is the union we're organizing with which we will be part of, but they're otherizing and acting like it's it's not the workers ourselves doing this. It's CWA coming in and taking advantage of us. And they're also trying to, in some ways, turn the rest of our studio, the rest of our team against us by saying things such as, we don't believe that this decision should be made by such a small, only a handful of employees that will affect the entire studio, which it won't. We, we're not going to be bargaining over anyone else's compensation or benefits or anything like that. We can't. We don't have that power. 
Only the company can do that. The company that is run by a small handful of individuals making decisions for thousands of employees. We've seen not so much captive audience meetings, but captive audience Slack channels. Yeah, I understand you even filed an unfair labor practice charge against uh, an executive for writing something in Slack. Lulu. Lulu, right. It's a big statement saying, no, you're not a union and we're, we're listening to talk to you. But then they locked comments and allowed no one to respond to this big statement. They say one thing, yeah. they do another. The origin of the unfair labor practice is because she said something along the lines of um, unionizing, delaying raises and improvements to benefits, which is not true. It's just that if the company wants to make a change, they have to make sure it's okay with the union. And again, the union is the workers. It would be us. So if we win our union, when we win our union, before we have a contract, if the company wants to give everyone a raise, they can come to us and we can discuss it as a unit and we can say, yes, absolutely, you can give us a raise <laughs> yeah. and they can do it. There's nothing stopping them from doing it, but they're, they're kind of manipulating sure. the truth here. It's not, it's, it's really it's, not true. Right. It's funny to imagine you're collectively bargaining against raises. Yeah, um, that's what the they think we're trying to do. <laughs> Yeah, but if but the the power in that is if the company decided they wanted to downsize our department and lay off a third of us, like what they did to Raven, uh, they would have to come to the union and we could say, absolutely not. You're not going to do that. We're not going to accept that. And if you try that, we will strike. And then you'll lose the entire department and probably other people who will join us in solidarity, which is going to severely impact productivity. So uh, having the union gives us power that we didn't have before. You explained what happens on Friday, which either you're going to have your vote or you're going to be waiting on a hearing. What's the next steps that you are seeing after this? As you say, when this is resolved, when you win this vote. So the next thing we'll do after winning our union is get certified, sign our union membership cards. We'll elect democratically our bargaining committee, and we'll start having discussions as a unit about the kinds of things that we want to see in the first contract. We'll start determining how we're going to bargain with uh, management, and we'll just get that process going. We'll have other mobilizing committees too, to make sure that our strength continues to be seen, that we continue to act collectively, we continue to show our unity. The power of being in a union derives from your unity. So we want to make sure that we're seen as a strong, cohesive unit who will protect each other. They said two heads are stronger than one. And so, you know, 20 heads is stronger than two, right? We're, we're confident that we're going to win our union. And when we elect our bargaining committee, we're only going to be looking out for our best interests. There's no way we're going to be voting in any way, shape, or form to lose benefits as if anyone would ever vote for a smaller paycheck or less vacation time. Mm -hmm. It would be insanity to do that. Um, But that's the kind of games that they're playing with us. They're trying to convince everyone else. They're trying to convince everyone that we're the prize, that we're the problem, that we're going to cause issues for everybody else. And it's just frankly not true. So we're excited for the future. That was Amanda Lavin and Matthew Devlin of the Game Workers Alliance. Because of the huge snowstorm expected in Buffalo, a decision on the company's appeal has been postponed. Reporting for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, this is Moses Nagel. We will continue to update you on this issue as more information surfaces. Extinction Rebellion of the Capital District occupied the offices of TD Bank in Albany on Friday to protest their role in financing the country financing the continued use of fossil fuels. Mark Dunley was here to report. On Friday, November 18th, uh, several dozen people with uh, Extinction Rebellion 
protested at the TD Bank on Eagle Street in Albany, crossing the Capitol, as part of the ongoing campaign to stop the finance and uh, buy banks of uh, fossil fuels. Um, five people uh, ended up uh, being arrested. We hear from three of them. Um, our lineup, Pete Looker, Linda Latondra arrested, Elliot Adams, and um, Dan Leaf both arrested, and then uh, follow up with Matt Oyle, the main organizer for the event. So Extinction Rebellion uh, organized a protest at TD Bank on, on Friday to protest their financing of uh, fossil fuels. Uh, one of the people involved in the protest was uh, Pete Looker. Pete, wh why are you here today? Well, I, I've been following TD Bank. They were, from a long time ago, they were fund funding the uh, Keystone Pipeline, and they're funding these other pipelines still today. And, and building an infrastructure for the next 50 years for fossil fuels is really fossil foolish. So we're asking them to stop doing that. It's crazy. And, and why are you willing to risk arrest for this particular event? Well, um, uh, it's a small price to pay for what, they're, what we're doing for the kids' future. And how do you feel overall we're doing in terms of taking action to prevent uh, you know, climate collapse? I think the people and the young people who came here to support are are doing are moving on. I think the politicians and the corporate leaders are are not doing anything seriously. We need to be pushed. Thank you, Pete Looker. We talked next to uh, Elliot Adams, uh, one of the longtime leaders nationally, I believe, of uh, Veterans for Peace. Uh, Elliot, why are you out here protesting today? Well, <clears throat> to start with, the the environment is absolutely critical. Um, the, the, we need to get serious about uh, ending the global, the, the uh, climate, global climate change. Uh, in particular, right now, we're talking to one of the banks. Uh, uh, TD Bank is 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 supporting the in funding the um, global climate change. We need to stop that. Now, of course, right now we're meeting in. Um Egypt for, for COP27. Do you think the world governments are taking adequate action to avoid climate collapse? No, it's absurd. Uh, Biden is saying we need we need to deal with global climate change. Meanwhile, is supporting the war, the, the proxy war in, in Ukraine. Uh, it's plain and simple. Stop the war in Ukraine. It's not going to do any, any good. Uh, and it is an appalling environmental disaster. Uh, we need to be serious. And, and we have uh, the money we've spent in Ukraine is tiny compared to the money that we have committed but have not spent on global climate change. Uh, the big issue is global climate change. We need, to, we need the government to put that first and foremost on their agenda is fix the climate. <laughs> so if you happen to ran into the, uh, the head of uh, TD Bank or any of the other banks like Chase, what would you say to them about why they should be stopped financing fossil fuels? Well, there's two approaches. One approach is the, is the approach of, from the point of view of the world, we need, we need to end the global climate change. We have to stop uh, uh, financing uh, fossil fuel infrastructure. We need to finance uh, um, re renewable resources. From the point of view of the bank, they need to get on board. They're, they're supporting a dinosaur industry. They're supporting and therefore um, becoming a dinosaur themselves. They need to get out to the forefront of what, what the future is. And, and why are you willing to, to risk arrest for this uh, particular protest? Well, it's, 
We need to do what we have to do. I said that, that Biden should get out. It should just hurry up and get out of the, the proxy war in Ukraine. I need to do what I have to do. Uh, I need to do something. I can't sit home and ignore the problem and complain about other people. I need to take whatever action I can take. Thank you, Elliot. We next catch up with uh, Linda Leterin, <laughs> who is up in uh, Saratoga, and she's dressed as a skeleton, I, I believe, today. So, so Linda, what, what, what is your costume about? My costume is about the climate change is going to kill all of us. And, and I have a sign here that says, I thought climate change was a hoax, and it's to get people to realize that this is really serious. We're going to die, all of us on this planet, if we don't figure this out and fix it die sooner than we want to. Yeah. So why protest at a bank? Because they're helping to fund climate, the climate chaos with the, with the oil companies and the plastic companies and all their, nothing happens without money behind it. So one of my unfortunate things is I'm now joining you in terms of uh, who my congressional representatives, uh, Elise Stefanik. Uh, if you happen to run into uh, Elise, uh, you have any message for her as our representative in Congress? Um, I'm very fortunate. Paul Tonko is my representative in the city of Saratoga Springs, so thank you, Jesus, or whoever. Um, my message to Elise Stefanik is that if you don't care about yourself, at least care about your young son, because he's going to need a place to live, and there is no planet B. Thank you, Linda. Okay. So one of our next people is uh, Dancing Leaf, and she's going to have a statement she'll be reading today as part of the protest. So uh, what is it? Yeah, so talking to TD Bank, we're going to TD Bank, and TD is a climate criminal, and we call them out. TD loves to present a green image from tree planting to committing to net zero financed emissions by 2050, yet TD Bank has yet to turn these words into actions and continues to be the second largest financier of fossil fuel expansion projects in Canada. As of July 2022, TD does not manage any fossil-free investment products in-house. TD Bank funds the expansion of fossil fuel infrastructure to the... Excuse me. <laughs> to the tune of U.S. <clears throat> dollars of $103.4 billion from 2016 to 2019. And they also fund the tar sands for the same amount for $22 billion the same time. TD Bank is a climate criminal. At ground zero, the First Nation treaties, one, four, six, seven, eight, and 11 states that the lands of First Nations cannot be compromised by uncontrolled development or threaten First Nations culture and traditional way of life. Until recently, the community of the Fort Chippewyan relied on 80% subsistence diet but now pollution, boreal forest and ecosystem loss and habitat fragmentation is a direct threat to their survival. <clears throat> living to all the Native American peoples living within the tar sands environment. These people are considered expendable by TD Bank. Each barrel of oil from surface mining requires two to four barrels of fresh water and produces about one and a half barrels of toxic waste each day, 11 million liters of waste leaks into the Athabasca River, approximately 4 billion liters of contamination each year. At current production rates, 13 football fields of pristine boreal forest is lost each day. TD Bank is doing this. They are funding this. 
It presents itself as an environmentally friendly company, yet they do not offer even the simplest of green investment products to their customers. They fund hundreds of millions of dollars in climate damaging fossil fuel development annually. As a direct result, water is poisoned, as well as the fish it holds, the animals that drink there, and the humans who depend on all that ecosystem. You directly fund the destruction of Canada's boreal forest, and with that, the caribou and native people through the spread of cancer and toxin-laden fish and water are threatened. TD Bank is a climate criminal. We call you out, you greenwashing monsters. Your pledge means only harm. Stop funding tar sands and start acting like human beings. Thank you, Danson Lee. Our final speaker is, is Matt Oyle, who's one of the uh, lead organizers with uh, Extinction Rebellion. Um, so Matt, why is XR targeting TD Bank uh, today? Well, in the last uh, five years, TD Bank has uh, invested about $121 billion into fossil fuel projects. And they have direct ties with, uh, with the construction of the Trans Mountain Pipeline and Line 3. And as has been probably said in the various people have already spoken, the climate crisis is getting worse and worse every day. You know, the IPCC has warned numerous times that we have to act now before it is too late. In fact, um, the uh, UN general just said as part of COP27 that we could start to see food shortages as early as next year. And, you know, the global south is already suffering and we're, we're in for a rough time if we do nothing. And we can't just keep going on as if nothing is happening. And our leaders have made it clear that they're not going to act on their own will, so we have to rise up and we have to force them to do it for the sake of literally all life on Earth. And why does XR decide that uh, civil disobedience is an appropriate tactic to uh, fight the climate uh, change issue? Well, for starters, it's you know it has a long history of working with like Dr. King, Gandhi, the suffragette movement, the anti-war movement uh, during Vietnam, etc., and. We have tried literally everything, petitioning, green rallies, writing, voting, writing to our elected officials, and nothing has worked to get the change that we need. And civil disobedience is a way to force them to listen to you. And at this point, it's, I think it's too late for anything but that. Thank you, Matt Oil. This has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Find more coverage on climate action at mediasanctuary.org. And for those of you just tuning in, I'm Andrea Cunliffe. And I'm Jacob Boston. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and W-O-O-A-L-P 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. And if you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Historian Heather Briegel recently gave the talk Decolonizing Thanksgiving, Learning the Truth and Crashing the Myth. She gives a lot of talks on indigenous history in the Hudson Valley. Sina spoke with her about policy which land, 
policy with land and its connection to the murdered and missing indigenous women. I am Heather Briegel. I'm an enrolled citizen of the Oneida Nation of Wisconsin, first line descendant Stockbridge Muncie, and I work as a public historian and consultant. Welcome back to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you. It's been a while since we've had you on this program, and you're now based locally, and as you mentioned, you're working as a freelance historian and consultant. So I'd love to talk about what that work is for you and what are some of the talks that you have been invited to give? Yeah, yeah, I am local now. I'm I'm right here in the Hudson River Valley, which is kind of cool. Um, I think last time I spoke with you, I was still in the Midwest and and I am not there anymore. But um, yeah, so a lot of the work that I do um, revolves around uh, public history, uh, primarily indigenous history, and bringing it to the the forefront of of everyone's mindfulness, um, making sure that they understand the the history of indigenous peoples. You know, I've been invited to do talks on a number of topics, whether that's, you know, well, this is very timely, but it's November, Thanksgiving. So I've been invited to do talks on how do you decolonize Thanksgiving? You know, who were the original New Yorkers in sense of like who was living in the land? I have been invited to do talks on current and contemporary Indigenous issues such as the Indian Child Welfare Act, um, which I did at the, I've done a couple of times. Um, and the last one I did regarding that was at the Brooklyn Law School. And then also on MMIW, which is an epidemic within Indian country that, you know, not a lot of people know about outside the communities. And so we want to bring awareness to that. I've talked on boarding schools and how to create places of inclusivity. So you name it, as long as it deals with Indigenous histories, I've probably talked about it. What are the talks that you enjoy giving most? Um, The talks that I enjoy giving the most deal with policy in a historical basis. So whether that is just an overview of federal Indian policy, which I do a talk on, or um, issues, contemporary issues today that deal with policy. That's what I absolutely love. When I was finished with my graduate school program, I had toyed around with the idea of actually going to law school um, because I just love policy so much. And the intricacies of federal Indian policy are interesting to delve into and, and try to understand because it's it's so different than any other type of law. Well, um, I did not go to law school, but um, my love of policy never wavered. And so I really enjoy talking about that, but from historical perspective. So how did a policy come to be? Or for example, of the Indian Child Welfare Act, how did ICWA become a policy that was needed to protect indigenous children? So then that leads into other topics that are in Indigenous history that combine my love of history and my love of policy all into one. So I kind of like talking about anything from a historical perspective because I feel like you have to have that historical basis in order to understand a topic. We could spend a couple segments just on talking about the policies that have to do with uh, reservations. What are some of the basic things to understand about the history of there is um, sovereignty 
over these lands, but it also creates these restrictions and, and lack of resources. What are some of the basic things we should know about that? Yeah, I think one of the things that people are completely surprised about when they hear me talk, and when I talk about land or reservations or anything like that, people are primarily surprised to learn that Indigenous tribes, Native nations, however you want to classify them, don't actually own the reservation land that they're on. Um, it's the 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 deed, the title to that land is held in trust by the federal government. And people are their minds are just blown when they when they hear that because you think, oh, you have reservation land, oh, you must own it. No, we don't own it um, at all. And makes it very um, easy for the federal government at any time, you know, to take it away if they wanted to. But this, the the idea that the deeds or titles of the land are held in trust by the federal government comes from a time period where the federal government didn't deem indigenous peoples, native peoples as competent enough to handle their own affairs. So if we weren't competent enough to, quote, handle our own affairs, I'm assuming they mean, you know, Eurocentric kind of affairs, then we weren't competent enough to hold the deeds or titles to the land that we were on. So that's just, it's just a really interesting concept. So people are always like, that's just such a concept that people just, they're just mind blown by it. And they're like, so you don't own the land, so, but you live on it. So what happens when you, if you pass away, like, do you get to pass it to your children? No, it, it reverts back to the tribe. And I mean, sometimes it can, depending on tribal land policies, sometimes it can be, you know, you can pass it, pass it down to a next of kin, but nobody actually owns it. So I think out of anything, that's probably the thing that people, such a misconception about the most is that we own that land and we don't own it. Is there linkage between the murdered and missing Indigenous women and the investigations that are taking place where when it if it takes place on sovereign land, these lands that are reservations, that they aren't investigated properly? Yeah, yeah. So I think you're hinting at are there issues within jurisdiction? Thank you. Of yeah, <laughs> of who can investigate these crimes. And yeah, absolutely. Um well, I don't even know where to start on answering that question because, yes, there are um, issues within criminal jurisdiction when it comes to investigating crimes of missing and murdered Indigenous women, um, whether they happen on tribal lands, non-tribal lands. Is your state a public law 280 state? Is it not a public law 280 state? Do Does the BIA, Bureau of Indian Affairs, have jurisdiction over it? Does the FBI have jurisdiction over it? And what's the role of tribal police? So there is so much that goes into trying to figure out who can investigate a crime before a crime's even investigated. So once that's figured out, which can be quite difficult to figure out, um, there's you know, time goes by and leads, you know, crim leads in criminal investigations um, become smaller and uh, perpetrators can get away. Um, and there's also this, this, it's not a concept, it's an actual thing. Some of it's changing now with, um, you know, policies that 
are being passed, like, for example, um, under the Violence Against Women Act, some things have changed, but if a non-native perpetrator or person commits a crime on uh, reservation land, indigenous land, the tribal court system doesn't have jurisdiction over them. And so it gives this idea that tribal lands are just places that you can go to commit these crimes and you can get away with it because the tribal police don't have jurisdiction over you. So you can commit a crime on tribal land, leave tribal land, and by the time the crime gets investigated, you're already long gone. So yes, there is this um, complicated relationship between tribal criminal justice and federal criminal justice on who can investigate said crimes and bring people to justice for these. I think it's important here to note that even though it's only recently been gaining some more attention, this uh, epidemic of murder and missing Indigenous women, it's been since colonization this has been happening, and it's been a long time yes. issue. Yeah. Um, before I let you go, thank you so much, Heather Briegel, for joining us. What is one thing that you'd really love listeners to understand around the work that you're doing or around some of the issues that you talk about? First and foremost, Indigenous people are still here. Uh, we might not be in the numbers that we once were prior to colonization starting, but we're still here. And we still have histories um, that are rich and vibrant and stories that we want to share and issues that we want to talk about. And, you know, you, you can educate yourself on our histories and be open to learning something new. And so I really just want people, when they see, you know, uh, programs happening by Indigenous artists, speakers, scholars, what have you. Go to them. Learn. Because you're going to learn about a side of history that you didn't know before. And, you know, support Indigenous-led causes. Support Indigenous-owned businesses. Like we're getting ready to do holiday shopping. You know, support those businesses. Because when you do that, you're supporting culture and tradition and language continuously happening. And that's, I think, uh, more important than anything in the world. Thank you so much. Thank you. Heather Bruegel is a frequent guest on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Find more of her work at mediasanctuary.org. Jermaine Wright, personal chef and owner slash founder of 8 Count Kitchen, spoke with Marsha Lazarus about what inspired the name 8 Count Kitchen and how Chef Jermaine celebrates Thanksgiving. So as Thanksgiving is almost here, what better time to talk about food and Chef Jermaine Wright's culinary journey? Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Marsha Lazarus sitting with personal chef and owner of Eight Count Kitchen, Jermaine Wright. What inspired the name Eight Count Kitchen? So it's, it's interesting because um, a lot of people don't know this, but um, I Chopped on Food Network uh, is and has been and used to be my real like my favorite show. And one of the reasons is because it's it's kind of the same way my brain works when it comes to food. So the concept of the show Chopped is that there's a mystery basket of ingredients, three rounds, start with four chefs, end with one. You have an appetizer round, entree round, and dessert round, and you have to use all five mystery basket ingredients. And so they're some of the weirdest combinations of things to make a sweet, savory dish, et cetera. So when I was up, I applied to the show and there was a YouTube link. And this was back in like 2013, maybe. 
14-ish. And I was like, dag, I have nothing to put in the link. And back then, like YouTube was such a big deal and you had to have videos. So I said, all right, you know what? In order to make this application what it needs to be, I need to create a YouTube called, and I was like, what would I call it? And, you know, I'm a dancer and I'm a chef. I've been a hip hop dancer for about half of my life, actually. Uh, I actually teach competitive, uh, two competitive teams at a dance school here. I competed a lot myself. Um, and uh, that was a huge passion of mine at the time and still is. So I said, what can I do? And I said, but the dancing chef, like why not just call it Eight Count Kitchen? Um, and then that day I created a YouTube series or a YouTube show, if you will, um, and filmed it and everything just in preparation to have something to attach to this link. I had no idea that it will become a brand. I had no idea that it will become a business down the line and in the future. I had no idea that it will become anything that it has become. Um, and I'm grateful for that. Talking about food and Thanksgiving comes to mind. Is, does the holiday have any special significance to you? Absolutely. Um, Thanksgiving is actually, well, and Christmas, but Thanksgiving is one of my favorite holidays. And one of the reasons is, you know, a lot of Black families, you might hear that they have soul food for Thanksgiving um, or soul food every Sunday, I should say. I didn't grow up. Maybe my mom did that. I'm the youngest. Maybe she did that with my older siblings. But when I was growing up, I didn't have soul food. I told you we had like the orange slices and the fish and the different things like that. So I only remember having soul food on Thanksgiving and it's one of my favorite cuisines. So it was always like a treat I got once a year. So Thanksgiving has huge significance. So significant now that I get conned into cooking every daggone thing every year by my whole family. Um, and I'm the person traveling in and visiting from a different state, paying the money, spending the time packing and all that. And I got to come work, cook, clean. But I love them, so I allow it. But um, so yeah, it has it has huge significance. So much so that my mom, if I don't make it, it it's probably throwing my mom and say a huge depression because one, she doesn't get to see me. I only get to see my family once or twice a year, um, which is usually Thanksgiving or Christmas. And then I recently slid in a couple of extras. Um, and then the second thing is my mom feels like it's a missing link. She needs her chains together. And if I'm not there, the chain is broken. So it's hugely, strongly significant, so much so that I have to turn down a lot of clients often because I have to go to my own family um, since it's the real one time out, out the year that, um, that I, I get a chance to. So. Can you give us a, a little snippet, the menu for this sure. Thanksgiving? Yep. So it depends uh, where my mom's palate is. Sometimes she says, I want something different this year, you know, so we'll elevate what different looks like. But traditionally, we go this full menu. We have um, baked mac and cheese, um, which is nice, has a nice little like crisp on the top because you get the cheese very nice after it's tossing like the the um, the fondue or the bechamel. But anyway, so we have mac and cheese. Um, the next thing we have are um, mashed sweet potatoes or what somebody might call yams, um, which we make that with a little bit of acidity, orange juice, and then brown sugar, nutmeg, all of the, the warm fall spices. We have potato salad. Um, we have uh, collard greens, but I've recently, uh, one of my signature dishes are southern style kale greens with smoked turkey. Um, a lot of people who eat it. So a lot of um, people of color might think and look at kale like kale. Why would we have kale on Thanksgiving? But because the kale tastes so much like the collard greens they're used to, people don't notice. So Southern style kale greens. Um, what else is there? We have, oh, my uh, very famous, I guess, cornbread uh, stuffing, which is made uh, with some, you know, sage and some it, butter. It's just delicious. Uh, what else is on the menu? Um, we have for proteins. Uh, my brother always does the ham, so we leave that to him. He, I'll, I'll leave that to him. Um, and then we have the beautiful bird, obviously. Um, and then I'm sure I'm missing a bunch of other things, but 
a huge menu, tons of food that I don't know why we cook so much because there's not many of us even eat all of it, but it's just such a tradition that we just do it and eat on it for, for days. So yeah, that's a little sneak peek, I guess. Oh, yeah, cranberry yeah. sauce. Yeah, sorry, it's a big deal because um, we grew up eating can cranberry sauce out of the can and I told my mom, I was like, ma, you know, it's really easy to make, it's a lot of sugar, but it's really easy to make. Since I've been making it probably for the last six years, she has never, she was like, oh, I would never go to canned anything, like ever. So cranberry sauce is like a big thing too. Is there a particular experience or accomplishment that you are especially proud of? I know you have a lot to be proud of. Anything in particular that comes to mind? I have two. Um, as it relates to cooking, I will say being on Food Network was a big deal. It was so early in my career, but it was such a big deal. Um, one of the things is, you know, sometimes you know, growing up, you grow with this passion for food, you have this natural intuition when it comes to food, um, but you don't have culinary school. So there's a lot of things that you have to yourself taught. So you have to learn. And a lot of the times it's a lot difficult. And I'm sure a lot of entrepreneurs go through this, um, especially entrepreneurs of color, but there's this imposter syndrome. And I feel like when I first started, I thought I was a chef, but I had no idea that, you know, I could never respectfully call myself a chef in real life because it's, I don't have the story where I worked in a restaurant my entire life and I worked up from a dishwasher, then I became this and then a prep chef, then I don't have that experience. So I feel like Food Network, once I got on a national platform or international platform, um, the world made me a chef and it forced me to like come and, and do this thing. So when we talk about proof of concept, for example, um, it's all about that. So I think that it was part of that. But then the so Food Network, I would say is the biggest thing because it's one of the biggest accomplishments that anyone can have. You know, there's so many people who's gone to culinary school, for example, have never worked alongside a celebrity chef in their life, may never get the chance to, may never get a chance to work in a high-end restaurant, may never get a chance to win a contest where you can have a celebrity chef mentor or work in a restaurant and do you know 10 hour shifts and 12 hour shifts. So it was a really, really great opportunity to really catapult my career and help me step into my purpose and step to, into who I am. So I think Food Network was a really big one. And then my second one I have to say is the Remy Martin win, because again, it's, it's really a nice reflection to be able to look back and say, wow, that was a major milestone three years ago at that time. Wow, this is a new major milestone. And now in this time looking back at that, and there's so many, so much more coming uh, in store for me that I know about um, that other people don't or won't. And then there's so many things I have no idea that are going to come. But I just know that the energy and the universe is going to bring me all the things that are supposed to serve me and my soul. No pun intended. If you were going to be talking to maybe a group of young aspiring entrepreneurs, and you wanted to alert them to a challenge that you faced. Is there any particular advice you would share? Yeah, absolutely. I think to any young person who's aspiring to do anything, it doesn't even have to be in culinary, it's literally the only person stopping you is you. I promise you that. I tell everybody to, uh, the way I look at anxiety is just, it's, it's this idea that you're walking, you have your eyes closed and you're imagining yourself in this long, creepy hallway. And at the far end of the hallway is a door. And as you walk closer and closer to the door, you hear bears behind gnawing and scratching at the door. And as you get closer, it sounds like two. And then you start hearing growling just to open the door and realize one of two things. One, there's no bear at all. It was only your brain. Or two, there is a bear, but it's a cute, cuddly bear that just wants to be pet and groomed. So my advice would be that the only person really standing in the way is us. And um, 
there's so much more on the other side of fear. There's so much more waiting for you on the other side of fear and do the work and don't be afraid. And, um, you know, I used to tell myself every time something positive happened to me, when I got Food Network, when I got Remy Martin, when I got anything else in my, in my career, I used to say, why is this happening to me? I'm just a little black boy from Queens. And even stepping outside of that and empowering yourself and saying, of course, this is happening to me. Like, look at all the work I do and look at the things, the energy I put out and look at, you know, the kindness I, I give to people, the universe and everything else. Why, why wouldn't this? Why shouldn't this happen when you put in the work? So I would say have confidence, keep going, realize that the only person who can stop you is you um, and that there's so much more on the opposite side of there. And you can find an earlier interview with Jeremy Wright or Jermaine, it's Jermaine Wright by Marsha Lazarus on our website, mediasanctuary.org. Hasham Hussaini's poems in Disbound scrutinize the social, political, and historical traces inherited from one's language. She spoke with Sina about her work. Disbound, a book of poetry, will launch on November 26th at this month's Salon Salvage event in Troy. The author, Hajar Husseini, joins me now. Welcome. Hi, Sina Basilia. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm so glad to be here. Welcome. And congratulations on your new book. Thank you. Thank you. How would you describe Disbound and the poetry within its pages? Uh, so it's, it is a very hard question to ask, po to, to ask poets to describe their work <laughs> or any artist or that, but I'm going to try. I'm going to try my best. So I wrote this bound uh, during a time when I was, uh, I had recently uh, resettled in U.S. as an international student. And I'm originally from Afghanistan. Um, and so there were a lot of, uh, I would say, psychological and political uh, encounter between uh, me and the country. And I, I found solace in the language and so far as trying to shape it in a way that could, uh, conform to the feelings that I have had about my relationship to uh, my family back in Afghanistan and my relationship to um, to this new identity being in in the US as a as a as an immigrant perhaps uh, so so there were a series of poems in which I tried to find my relationship to all of these issues through punctuation marks I was writing these during the pandemic and I found punctuation marks as 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 almost like an essential worker of the language in the, in the sense that they were not really considered uh, part of the alphabetic order or the part of the alphabet, but yet they they perform such serious work to, to distinguish ideas and to separate them so that they, the, the language is comprehensible. Uh, so these punctuation poems are each one poem for each punctuation marks. And then I also wrote a series of poems uh, through found language in, in social media and uh, political commentary in Afghanistan, and uh, as well as uh, news media and uh, videos of people witnessing um, explosions or other atrocities on the streets. So these are languages that uh, I have borrowed from social media and, and elsewhere, and uh, in which the poems also change drastically, stylistically, because they are like what could be considered poetry of witness. And then there are also a series of other poems that I wrote about um, 
relationships and and finding friendship uh, in a new environment that I was um, in, in in the U.S. So it's a collection of a series of poems, uh, and they're not really um, placed close to each other. When I, when I was editing the book, they were dispersed throughout the book in order to create a narrative arc uh, of, of the poetry book. So that was a decision that my editor and I made uh, during the, the, the final process of putting the book out there. Persian and English are, are very different languages, just visually. And of course, every language has a different vocabulary and a different set of expressions for feelings and thoughts. Do you decide when to write in which language? Do some of your poems exist in both languages? No, I don't write in Persian at all. I used to write when I was younger. And because I, I never like really interrogated the language intellectually because I, I went to college here, my relationship with it was impacted negatively in the sense that I couldn't really communicate myself in a very deep way in, in Persian anymore. But I had like glimpses of it in my in in my sense of expression that sometimes appear in my English poems and sometimes they do not. I think the English that was perhaps like encouraged and imposed to a certain extent on Afghan people was the English of diplomacy and foreign policy and English of politics. And uh, a lot of Afghans had to begin learning English in order to find jobs. And, and so uh, and to be integrated into the new government. And, and so it works within that like uh, transition of like acquiring the English language as well as like trying to find yourself within this like very diplomatic mode of expression. And then parts of Persian poetry and my, my tradition of learning poetry comes into that in the sense that like sometimes my sentences are uh, far too... Uh, long or uh sometimes like the 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 word order changes because of my my uh my association with another language so in that sense persian comes in and out you mentioned that you find solace in language and just thinking about the political relationships between the u.s and afghanistan and how language is often one of those things that's taken, as you were saying, English was also necessary for people to learn. Do you find that there's a way uh, that you're like reclaiming the history of, of your relationship with languages, but also the political relationship? That's a great question. Yeah, I, I mean, in so many ways, when I write poems, I try to blur the line between my subjectivity and, and uh the historical or the national subjectivity of the country of Afghanistan. Like there's always that literal reading of a passage, but then there's also within it, there's like, uh, it could be read politically and historically. And so I do try to find uh, ways in which I could express not only myself, but what, what I see is being lost on, on day-to-day news uh, and day-to-day understanding of Afghan people so there is definitely that attempt and intervention to, to, to perhaps to redeem or to, to make me uh, aware that there, there is something that I need to redeem. And so language has always been like the modes in which I, I try to find ways where I can 
express what is unexpressed or what is not necessarily unexpressed, but more like what is uh, silenced or not paid attention to. Uh, Those are important lessons. And you're currently teaching at Skidmore. So how do these lessons come into your classroom? That is also a great question. I try not to, I mean, in some ways, I'm not teaching anything about Afghanistan. I'm not teaching materials that has directly uh, uh, impacted me. Uh, maybe because my 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 I'm still not able to distance myself quite a while, and I'm afraid of like being emotionally uh, charged in a in a classroom setting where I have to be more professional. But I do teach other literatures that I think relates to my conditions. Like for instance, I'm teaching a postcolonial class in Skidmore, and I'm focusing on Algeria. Uh, in its decoloniality conditions, because um, I feel like in many ways, the history of Algeria really uh, resembles what is happening right now in Afghanistan. So by by going through uh, the po- the most important, po- this is an undergraduate class, so I can't really dig deep, but perhaps the most canonical writers of Algeria um, and how do they represent these moments in, in literature, these turbulent moments in literature, has been like a way for me to talk to my student indirectly about Afghanistan or how I feel. Before we run out of time, I do want to make sure that we talk about the upcoming book launch, which will be taking place at Salon Salvage on Saturday, November 26th. And I believe you will also be doing a reading that night. Yes, I will be doing a reading with uh, MS Red Cherries, who's a poet coming from Brooklyn and also with uh, Laura Marshall, who is coming from Massachusetts. So there will be great poetry, uh, three readers and and also the book launch at 7 p.m., I I think. We'll have the information linked in the description along with this. And thank you so much, Hajar Husseini, for talking with us on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. And Hajar Husseini will be launching her book, Disbound at Salon Salvage on Saturday, November 26th. Find Salon Salvage on Facebook. And that's it for our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Andrea Cunliffe. And I'm Jacob Boston. Our engineer is Sina Hickey. We thank all of our volunteers who made today's episode possible. Headlines from Mark Dunley, segment producers Moses Nagel, Mark Dunley, Sina Bazila Hickey, and Marsha Lazarus. And your co-host, I say this every week, the wonderful, and I'm glad she's back this week. I wasn't here if she was here last week. Andrea Cunliffe and me, Jacob Boston. Well, it's a pleasure to be here with you, Jacob and Sina. We think... We, we want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Media Sanctuary or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. We appreciate your listening. Until next time.